Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, where spiritual formation is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? What's up? How we doing? How is everyone? I hope everyone is doing well. (sighs) All right. It is a Sunday afternoon. This is episode number four. Episode number four. Um, and I am ready to talk about this. I've really enjoyed Inspired so far. It's great. Um, Rachel Held Evans is great. I think the way that she's approaching things and the conversations that she's willing to have um, are great. And that's the other thing. Like, I'm shocked. Do you know who the publisher of this book is? It's Zondervan, right? It's Thomas Nelson, which is owned by, I mean, got bought out by Zondervan. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a conservative publisher. Yeah. And so like, if you're looking for where Rachel fits kind of in like the political landscape, it's like moderate right leaning. Right. Like she's not super liberal. No. Um, at least this book's not. Yeah. Like. She's just asking the right questions. Right. And the question that she asks in this chapter is actually one that I had not thought about. What she, the question that she wants to wrestle with in this chapter is, is the Bible made up is the Bible resistance literature. So walk that out. What does that mean, resistance literature? Resistance against the empire. Stick it to the man mentality. So the gospel for the oppressed kind of idea. Yeah. Is the Bible resistance literature? Let me let me ask you a different question. <laughs> let me ask you a different question. Does the Bible have resistance literature? Yes, absolutely, 100% yes. Is the Bible resistance literature? No, not largely. Why do you say that? Because of what we see a lot of in the Old Testament with large power narratives, with lots of the main characters being people who hold lots of power and are given lots of power. Are those Jews, though? Yes. Name a few. Uh, David. Solomon. Um, oh, by the way, who gets conquered and the temple fair destroyed? Enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, they're not they're not world powers. They're not no, the they're most not powerful. World, no, no, no. It that's not but that's not what you asked. Yeah, also you you named what less than a hundred years? Yeah, that's also true. Across several thousand Although Abraham is given lots of power. It's not fully realized, but he is given lots of power. <laughs> How how do you think under normal like power structures under how, normal modern power structures none ancient ancient power how is Abraham He's powerful? promised an entire lineage okay but as far as power does that promise yield him an army can no. he just go and conquer no no but power the Bible is realized through him or through his yeah life. I think you're taking it metaphorically Rachel's point 
is that the Bible is written 90% of it, mm. maybe even 95% of it, by people who are oppressed, by people who are actually the vulnerable. They don't operate according to the main power structure. They're not Roman. They're not Egyptian. They're not Persian. Right. They don't have the kind of main power system. They are That's those fair. fighting a resistance. They're fighting against the empire. Fair. Which is also what Jesus does. Mm-hmm. And her main, like her number one example of this is that, or the way she kind of sets this up is that even in the times where Israel's not fighting against a world power, not resisting a world power, they are resisting some kind of power, mm-hmm. which ends up being identified metaphorically. Leviathan, dragons, Babylon, just all these different metaphors of this empire that they are resisting. And some of the best some of the best literature in all of ancient history is in the Bible. Mm. Like, as far as just like Classical, beautiful literature. Like, Job may be one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever to grace this planet with its presence. So much of the Bible is this beautiful element that can be classified as resistance literature. And this is how she classifies it. It is in this sense that much of literature... Much of scripture qualifies as resistance literature. It defies the empire by subverting the notion that history will be written by the wealthy, powerful, and cruel, insisting instead that the God of the oppressed will have the final word. That's absolutely the Bible. Mm -hmm. That Remember... The Christian experience begins in persecution. Yeah. Like this is not the the Christianity of the Bible is not the Christianity of today. No, absolutely not. I, I heard a statistic uh, this week that thirty three percent of the world population identify as Christians. Wow, that's a lot. That's a stupid amount of people that's that identify as Christians. Like an that is overwhelming amount. amount of there's 7.4 billion people on this planet. Yeah, you told me a third of them identify as Christians. Yeah, that's a ton of flipping people, and unfortunately, as Rachel so gladly and brilliantly points out. Most of them have overlooked the Bible as resistance literature because they want to be empire. Mm. Jesus fighting against the Roman Empire. Yeah. Israel fighting against the Egyptians and Babylon. Right. Countless times through the prophets. She's got a great paragraph in here about the prophets. 
This calling gives us some of Scripture's most memorable characters. Jeremiah, for example, wore an ox yoke around his neck to symbolize Israel's impending oppression under the Babylonian Empire. Ezekiel memorialized the fall of Jerusalem by building a model of the city and lying down next to it for over a year, 390 days on his left side and 40 days on his right side, eating only bread cooked over cow dung at meals. When a group of teenage boys taunted the prophet Elijah's baldness, God sent two female bears to maul them to death. When Jonah tried to avoid God's call to preach in the dangerous Assyrian city of Nineveh, God sent a giant fish to swallow up the prophet for three days before spitting him out on the closest shoreline. Hosea married a prostitute to make a point. John the Baptist famously took the wilderness, took to the wilderness, subsisting on locusts and honey and urging people to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, the prophets are weirdos. More than anyone else in Scripture, they remind us that those odd ducks shouting from the margins of society may see things more clearly than the political and religious leaders with the inside track. Prophets are one of the largest categories of explicitly resistance literature. Mm. And notice, think back to some of the prophets. Prophets are calling out Israel in the face of empire. Yeah. Jeremiah, great example. Right. Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the most quoted Bible verses. Do you know what, what's happening in Israel's history at the plot line of Jeremiah? At the plot line of Jeremiah? Yeah, no. like what, what's happening in Israel's history when Jeremiah says those words? I guess not. They're in slavery in Babylon. Jeremiah literally tells them, set up shop. You're going to be here for a while. Mm. So much of it, the prophets is resistance literature against empire, against the terrors of empire. But then you have a lot of prophecy, which is also resistance literature but it's resistance against Israel themselves, not because they are under empire, but because they're acting like empire. Mm. They're no longer the people who are resisting empire. They're embracing. For instance, the prophets directed their most stinging critiques at the leaders of their own community. The violence and excess of the empire was a given, But when Israel itself indulged in greed and sexual exploitation, when it oppressed its workers and neglected the poor, the prophets got really angry. The prophet Ezekiel compared Israel's sins to those of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, noting now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Ezekiel 16:49 The prophets and as we looked at you know in Acts with prophecy mm-hmm. like it is this act of proclamation that we right. are supposed to do we are supposed to claim resistance against empire yeah it is like yes. like empire is the metaphor right 
especially in the New Testament, especially in Paul. So much of the empirical language surrounding Rome is like massive to understand the biblical narrative. Yeah. And then Rachel does something brilliant. Hmm. She brings resistance stories into the conversation of apocalyptic literature. Okay. What is apocalyptic literature? Apocalyptic literature is literature surrounding the idea of the end. False. Eschatology can be apocalyptic. Right. And most of the time is. But apocalyptic literature just is a series or a genre of literature that comes from the idea of the apocalypse, which is the Greek word, which means revealing. Mm, okay. It just means for something to be revealed. So what would be examples of apocalyptic literature? Well, now I don't know where you're taking this. So. Well, Revelation. Revelation would be apocalyptic. You, First Thessalonians, there's pieces in there. Um, so many pieces Daniel. of Paul. Or, yeah, Daniel is another one. Uh, the Shepherd of Hermas yeah. is an apostolic father's writing that's apocalyptic. This is what Rachel says. Throughout the Bible's resistance stories, we encounter examples of apocalyptic literature. The word apocalypse means unveiling or disclosing. An apocalyptic event or vision therefore reveals things as they really are. It peels back the layers of pomp and pretense, fear and uncertainty to expose the true forces at work in the world. Using highly symbolic, theologically charged language, the authors of Scripture employ apocalyptic literature to dramatize the work of the resistance, to offer hope to those suffering under the weight of an empire that seems on the surface all-powerful and unassailable. So when the prophets Daniel and John envision the empires as vicious beasts, what they're saying is, beneath all the wealth, power, and excess of these dazzling empires lie grotesque monsters, trampling everyone and everything in their path. And when they depict God as tolerating, then restraining, and finally destroying these monsters, what they're saying is, the story isn't over. Even the greatest empires are no match for the goodness, righteousness, and justice of God. Hmm, interesting. One of my major problems, and I've been quite vocal about this, in the conversation of apocalyptic literature, most people just automatically think of Revelation. And specifically in America... I really do think it's a, a problem of our privilege that we think that book's written to us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so because of that, we come up with these strange, like, end times prophetic images where it's like, how did that image impact the persecuted yeah. second century Jew that's running from Rome, the empire? Right. It doesn't. Yeah. Which is who that's written to. Yeah. Rachel feels the same way. And this is why I think this idea that she has here is so great. This is what she says. And I think that's because Americans, particularly white Americans, have a hard time catching 
apocalyptic visions when they benefit too much from the status quo to want to peek behind the curtain. When you belong to the privileged class of the most powerful global military superpower in the world, it can be hard to relate to the oppressed minorities who wrote so much of the Bible. The fact is, the shadow under which most of the world trembles today belongs to America. And its beasts could be named any number of things. White supremacy, colonialism, the prison industrial complex, the war machine, civil religion, materialism, greed. America is no ancient Babylon or Rome. I know that. But America is no kingdom of God either. If you doubt it, study an old diagram of a slave ship. Try to count the number of chained up bodies drawn flatly in the cargo hold and multiply that by hundreds of thousands representing the nearly half a million Americans brought to America in the slave trade. Then remember that each of those bodies represent the very real life of a very real human being created in the image of God with memories and ideas and quirks and fears and that those who survived the voyage across the Middle Passage were brutally enslaved by people who claimed to be Christians. Or consider the trail of tears and try to imagine what it would be like to be a Cherokee mother driven out of your home by the U.S. government, stripped of your belongings and forced to walk thousands of miles with your small children from Georgia to Oklahoma without enough food or medical care, all because white men wanted the gold on your land. More than 4,000 Cherokees, including many mothers and children, died from exposure, disease, and starvation while making the gruesome march. Imagine watching your toddler die of hunger in the snow. The fact is, despite wistful nostalgia for the days when America was a supposedly Christian nation, the history of this country is littered with the bodies of innocent men, women, and children who were neglected, enslaved, disposed and slaughtered so the privileged class could have more and more and more and more more land more money more power more status more furs more guns more profits more amenities more square footage more security more fame the united states has the highest incarceration rate in the world and even though roughly the same number of white people use drugs as african americans um, African-Americans are sent to prison for drug offenses at six times the rate of whites. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'll spare you reading the rest of the chapter to you. Um, Rachel goes on to say that it seems like she's poo-pooing on America. She's not. I mean, she is. <laughs> she is. But she's actually quite a patriot. Right. Um. But honestly, if we really do love our country, we should be thinking critically about it and sure. not trying to protect it in the name of the things that we've done wrong, but name them, claim them, own them, and try to make them better. That's right. But yet, that's not what we do. We sit around and fight and have political discussions based on what's going to yield us more money. Um. I think for most of America, we've missed the fact that the gospel is a resistance story because we've wanted to become the empire. We've missed the fact that it's not about privilege. It's not about power. It's not about wealth. That it's actually about care and love 
and vulnerability and relationship in a way that genuinely is radical. Yeah. That it's not something that's easily recreated and yet takes plenty of work. What she ends up doing is she calls us Israel. There's just no denying that the very things for which Israel was condemned by the prophets, gross income inequality, mistreatment of immigrants and refugees, carelessness towards life, the oppression of... Bless you. There's just no denying that the very thing for which Israel was condemned by the prophets, a gross income inequality, mistreatment of immigrants and refugees, carelessness towards life, the oppression of the poor and vulnerable, and the worship of money, sex, and violence remain potent, prevalent sins in our culture. These sins are embedded in nearly every system of our society, from education to law enforcement to entertainment to religion. We are all culpable, all responsible for working for change. She's 100% right. And this is, let me say, this should be near and dear to all of our hearts because if you go back and look at the messages of Jesus, if you go back and look at the parables, if you go look back at the teachings. So often, Jesus seems to be in direct conversation with the narrative, the metaphor, the culture of empire. Even down to the fact that he becomes the king of his own empire. But on a cross, with a crown of thorns, um with mockery empire is one of the major motifs throughout the biblical narrative yeah and more times than not the bible is written by people who are oppressed by yeah. empire not contributors of empire when it means when, when Paul says we should suffer with Christ, he means that we should give up our power and be in this, this place of power without really being power, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, that's, that's what that means. And I don't know a way that you do that where you can't affirm everything she just said. That's because there's no way. If you really read your Bible and read the narrative, read the story, what you realize very quickly is we were never called to be powerful. No. That's not what the goal was. We were called to resist systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. We were called to resist systems and lives and lifestyles that bring about experiences of death for the image of God. Yeah. And yet, 
here in America, we still kill people via capital punishment. Like, yeah, there are so many things that the way that we live life and the, and the things that we endorse, and this one is really near and dear to my heart, and I think it's because we live in Houston near the border, but the way we yeah. treat immigrants, if you, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, if you are not in favor of immigration reform in a way that makes it easier on the immigrant, you're just ignoring a massive command throughout the biblical narrative right. to care for the immigrant and the foreigner, yep. um, the stranger in your land. That's right. Oh, and let's also not forget about caring for the orphan, which we have been really failing at here recently. Being that there are thousands upon thousands of kids just within Texas that don't have placement. Um. That tells me that there's a large issue too. When this issue could be easily fixed if one Christian, if every Christian family adopted one kid. Well, actually, that though that statistic is only from kids that are actually in the system. What about mm. the what about kids that are not in the system? Well, that's also true. Like I, we don't, which no we way, don't, we don't know. There's that no number. way to know that. Yeah. But my suspicion, there's not enough. Oh yeah, probably not. Um, but those that are involved but why do we not do it oh why do people why do people not adopt another kid because they're selfish and don't want to mess with their it costs too much money it yeah. costs too much time for me it does whatever right whatever reason and i'm not willing to give up my current lifestyle that's not a resistance mindset that's an empire mindset that's right we are called to be people of the resistance. Thanks for listening to the Practicing Presence podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.